I'm sure all business owners are looking forward to 2023, trying to identify opportunities that will enable them to grow their network, grow the business and improve their knowledge. Fortunately, we here at Downtown in Business are hosting two fantastic national conferences, which will help you hit all three objectives. On the 9th of February, we're at Edgebaston in Birmingham for our Planning Property and Regeneration Conference. Speakers include Andy Street, who is the Mayor of the West Midlands Combined Authority, Joanne Rowney, Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, James Lewis, the leader of Leeds City Council, Danielle Gillespie, Executive Director of Homes England, Tom Stannard, the Chief Executive of the Local Authority, Salford, and Tim Johnson, who's the CEO of Wolverhampton Council. Many other speakers coming along as well and more keynote speakers to be announced. So that's our Property Regeneration Conference, Thursday the 9th of February, 2023, at Edgebaston, Birmingham. Following month, the 2nd of March, we're in Liverpool for the Business Innovation and Tech Conference. This is Changemakers Live 2023, some of the most exciting people around the country talking to us about what their ideas are to solve the many challenges ahead as we move into the new year and, of course, beyond. We have Wes Streeting, who's the Shadow Health Secretary, with us. We have Lord Andrew Adonis, the mastermind behind HS2, an advisor at one time to Tony Blair and to Gordon Brown. Jessica Bowles, the Director of Strategy for Bruntwood, is also joining us, as is Colin Sinclair, the Chief Executive of Liverpool's Knowledge Quarter. Ryan Wayne, the Policy Director for Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, will be talking to us as well, as will Chrissy Wolfe a social media influencer and somebody who is an expert in terms of the Gen Z generation. So join us for those two fantastic conferences. If you want to find out more about them, all the details can be found on our website. That's all the W's, downtownandbusiness.com. He's been described as the best prime minister we never had. He's also been described as Tarzan, and he's certainly been described as the man who saved Liverpool. I was delighted to welcome into the Downtown Den podcast recently, Lord Michael Heseltine. He'd been in Liverpool uh, doing a keynote speech at the university, where, of course, he has the Michael Heseltine Institute. Uh, and we talked about... Current issues, of course, uh, we talked about regeneration, devolution, and of course, we talked about Brexit. Michael, a big advocate, of course, of the European Union, our membership of it, and his belief that at some point we will have to start to have a much closer relationship once again with the EU. We also look back briefly at what, of course, has been a fascinating career for Lord Hesseltine. Uh, and we talked a little bit about some mistakes, but also some of the good things that governments over the years have done. We also found out the Prime Minister that he admires most. Fascinating conversation, a fascinating listen, I'm sure you'll agree. Here's Lord Michael Heseltine in the Downtown Den. 
I'm absolutely delighted to be joined in the downtown den for the latest podcast by Lord Michael Heseltine, a man who doesn't really need any introduction, an absolute giant of a politician, both in the 20th and 21st century. So, Lord Heseltine, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to join you. And I know that you've been in Liverpool earlier this week, obviously a city very close to your heart, because it was in no small part due to your involvement during the 80s that the city was able to regenerate and really create a vibrancy in the city that we see today. You know, Liverpool in 2022 is an awfully lot different from the one that you first visited back in the 80s, isn't it? Yes, but let's remember that Liverpool is one of the great cities of our country with a long history. Uh, it had a very bad patch in the uh, 1970s, um, and uh, I became involved at the end of that. Uh, and uh, we need to, to try and do something to restore the confidence and the, uh, the, the well-being and pride of the city. Uh, and it was a very formative experience of my political career, perhaps politically the most formative thing I ever did. And in terms of it being formative, Lord Hesseltine, would you also say that on reflection, given the number of things you've been involved in in your political life, it's the thing that's given you the most pleasure during that career? I think that's fair. I think that's fair. The, the whole agenda of urban regeneration, I would, uh, I would undoubtedly select as one that delivered results and gave me enormous satisfaction and actually changed my views um, in some material respects, particularly about the uh, over-dominance of London as a capital city and the need to devolve power uh, in a way that other countries of our sort have done many years ago. That's an interesting comment. And obviously, we have enjoyed some form of devolution. And I know you've been a big advocate of uh, regional MERS, city MERS. Uh, do you think that we need to do more of that? Or do you think the governance models that are in place now are about right? No, they, they're absolutely not right. And uh, we need to do, in my view, urgently a great deal more. Uh, I think, quite frankly, the uh, once David Cameron, uh, George Osborne and Greg Clark left office, the whole momentum of devolution has gone out of it. A lot of people are running around saying we're leveling up, but in truth, uh, the things that need doing uh, have been uh, abandoned. And I see at the moment, um, uh, uh, frankly, no real indication that there's anyone there who has looked at the past, learnt the lessons and pushed the agenda forward. But would you say that people like Andy Burnham in Manchester, Andy Street in Birmingham, Steve Rotherham in Liverpool are making a difference? Oh, I would definitely say that. I know all three of them. And uh, I, I think that in those three great cities, uh, the agenda, which, of course, was uh, the agenda of the 
uh, three politicians I mentioned, is having an impact. But of course, uh, there's uh, the the partnership concept. What is central government doing to enable them to do their job more effectively? And when you ask that question, I'm afraid the answers are disappointing. They would argue, I guess, as a government, that they've introduced a framework through this notion of levelling up, which you've referenced. Uh, Michael Gove has produced a document to suggest the certain objectives that we look to, or we need to meet if we're to uh, get to that sort of levelling up um, objective. What, what would you suggest they need to do if they're going to be more serious or indeed more ambitious? in delivering economic growth outside of London? Well, I read, of course, Michael Gove's report and the analysis, and frankly, it is a rehash of reports that I was doing 10 years earlier, uh, and uh, it completely ignores the lessons that the Redcliffe Maud of the 1960s uh, produced. So words, frankly, don't create any momentum of levelling up. And um, let's come back to the central question that you asked me, what should the government do? Well, the government should do um, uh, at once the following things. It should appoint a minister as chairman of a cabinet committee, bringing together those essential departments uh, in Whitehall which influence and often control what happens locally. And you know the names as well as I do. The housing department, the transport department, the uh, uh, education and skills department, police. Uh, they're all absolutely fundamental to the well-being of local economies. So that's the first step. The second step is to uh, create a budget it drawn from the existing capital programs of central government. In other words, the budgets, capital budgets in those departments and others I have listed. And to say to local, uh, locally elected mayors, you design a program that you think will stimulate your local economies. Come forward with plans, and we will uh, support you using the existing money, but putting it into a collective pot. And what you must do, they would, the government would say, is to show what additional money you would be able to raise from either the third sector, from Quangos, uh, from other public sector bodies, or from the private sector to add to what we as a government are offering to provide for you. And that the government should then also create locally-based organizations of civil servants drawn from those same departments I've listed, so that when the, uh, the Steve Robbins, Andy Burnham's, uh, Andy Street want to discuss something with government, rather than making nine phone calls to each of the London departments, They've got a coherent civil servant organization in their area with whom they can discuss plans. Now, those are the things the government should long since, have, well, we did have it, but the government abandoned it. 
um, that they should recreate forthwith. And then they should turn the pressure back on the locally elected mayors, which they would welcome. Produce the plans by looking in the language that your people would understand, the SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats of your area. Come up with a strategy. Consult the, the, the stakeholders in your area, the local businesses, the university, the uh, police, the uh, um, wide community, in order to enthuse people that you, they were being involved in this great regenerative process. Uh, if you did that, it would have a galvanizing effect on the opportunities in each of our very different local economies. Uh, do you think, Lord Heseltine, that one of the things that stifles economic development and growth, though, all that you've just said, I would totally sign up for and agree with. But even if you had devolution, you still have an awful lot of red tape, bureaucracy, regulation that some people would suggest gets in the way of progress and development. And again, if I take you back to your time, not just in Liverpool, um, you did some great things in, in London, I think in Manchester as well. Wasn't one of the big advantages that you had was that you were able to take particular areas of cities and actually just get the job done, cut through an awful lot of that bureaucracy and red tape? <laughs> well, uh, you see, I think that bureaucracy, red tape, civil servants, Brussels, we know it all. It's just an alibi, isn't it? It doesn't mean anything. It's the sort of thing people say in order to give the impression that there's a solution which doesn't require any effort from the audience to which they are appealing. And, and so that's very understandable, but totally culpable in my humble way. Uh, let's just deal with red tape to start with. Uh, uh, the speech I've just Liverpool, which is now recorded on, on the uh, Heseltine Institute website or the European Movement website, the speech I've just made deals with this point by saying we can all enthuse when David Attenborough shows us life in the rural, in the jungle or the prairie, whatever it may be. But the law of the jungle is the survival of the fittest. And if you regulations are, they are what makes the law of the jungle civilized because they are what actually make civilized societies possible because the democratic process says there will be standards, there will be rules, there will be enforcement, and all of that requires regulations. That's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that regulations and the public sector behind them can have enormous beneficial effects on job creation. Uh, and in the Liverpool speech I referred to, I give endless examples of that. But you don't need to spend much time. Take the lottery. The lottery has had an incredible effect on the cultural and sporting prowess of this country. If you take uh, a university that has a spin-off estate in order to take advantage of the research that it's doing, that's the public sector working together with the private sector. If you think of uh, health regulations, well, first of all, they're good for our health, 
but they actually create a significant number of jobs because all sorts of services come online because the regulations demand the services. And you can go on and on. Um, and so, but in my experience of Liverpool, it was, it was not regulations or red tape or anything like that. I, I have a very simple philosophy of life. Show me the problem. Show me the person in charge. And when I walked the streets, when I walked the streets of Liverpool in 1981 after the riots, the one thing that was clear is that no one was in charge. And uh, so uh, I, I thought, well, I better try and do something. And I produced a list of things that could be done with the right energy and dynamism and determination, not change of the law. Um, and then I thought, oh, law. The problem is there's no one in charge. So I spent 18 months doing these things, and the results are there to be seen today, and people have been very kind about it. But, but uh, and one other story I'll tell you, which is quite interesting. I was president of the Board of Trade in uh, 1982, uh, 1992, sorry. And John Major... Um, in a, I think a conference speech, so I'd go on, Tarzan, swing in there, cut the red tape. And so amongst many things that I did, I wrote to every trade association and I said, look, I'm your man. We're going to really have a bonfire here. And so all you've got to do, O trade association, I said, is to send me an existing regulation with a redraft of what you think it could be to help your members. Now, I think it would be fairer than that. Result, zilch. Not a single reply. And, uh, you know, do you remember Brexit? Do you remember the bonfire? Oh, yeah. Do you remember Brussels yeah. civil servant? Yeah. Why is it that six years later, the only benefit has been to allow unlimited bankers' bonuses? Why is that? Because, of course, it was a totally phony promise. I was going to come on to Brexit because I know you're passionate in terms of not just campaigning against um, the vote to leave, but subsequently really scrutinising what's happened since. And during that six-year period, again, I'll play devil's advocate for a moment. I suppose Brexiteers would argue that we've had um, a pandemic and that, of course, we've had the conflict in Ukraine. I'm not sure how that necessarily leads to um, the economic stagnation that we were having prior, it seems to me, the pandemic. And certainly it doesn't tell me why our exporters are finding it so difficult to deal with our biggest trading partner. Um, are you still convinced of the arguments that you were putting forward back in 2016 before that that trading partner of the European Union needs to be our natural economic partner moving forward? Or are there other opportunities, as Brexiteers would have us believe? Well, I, I'm more convinced now than even I was at the time of the referendum, because now we've had six years in which the Brexiteers have been in charge and not able to deliver any of the results that they promised. And that indicates to me that they were never going to deliver them anyway because the promises were based on misunderstandings, to put it charitably. Um, 
but, but look, you represent uh, the industrial business commercial community. There will be lots of your people who, who are listening to this. And let's not get sort of carried away. If you want to export to uh, a market, let's take Europe. You can put the stuff in the post. If you want to buy from them in your supply line, you can get it within 24 hours. And it's 20 minutes, I'm sorry, it's 20 miles across the channel. Um, it's not very complicated. If you want to sell in Indonesia or India or China, well, that's a different ballpark. And uh, this whole psychology of saying to the business world, look, forget this huge market on your doorstep. Go for the growth markets without beginning to tell them that the huge market you were leaving would put up barriers because they will protect the single market. It's their market. And uh, then if you look at the uh, the newly emerging markets, well, I have some experience of some of these because I have created companies overseas. The first thing to realize is that if you're going to export a product, transportation costs of getting several thousand miles are quite high. So the temptation is to manufacture locally in China, for example, or India. And if you're in the service industry, well, you won't find it easy to service China, Indonesia, uh, India, wherever you like, with, unless you actually employ local people in those markets. Well, that's good for them uh, and good for their employment, but it defies my concept of being good for us. Mm. So, I mean, all, this is this is not rocket science. This is just blindingly obvious. And yet, uh, you say that, Lord Hesseltine, but people like Nigel Farage, for example, would say the reason that Brexit isn't working is that the government are not taking advantage of the opportunities available to them. I heard um, Reese Mock saying something similar a couple of days ago. They're saying, well, all these opportunities are out there, but we're just not grasping them. Well, I'm, of course, most interested in Jacob Reese Mock's views, and nobody has a a greater entitlement to uh, express these views you've just repeated. Because was he not minister for exiting the European Union with a whole government department at his disposal in order to achieve, the word I used was achieve, these results? And of course he was. So why, given that he had the levers of power in his control, didn't he do it? Is it just possible it's not doable? But given the fact that you have certainly a significant rump of the Conservative Parliamentary Party who support Brexit, I would say almost rapidly support Brexit over they do the Conservative Party in some cases. The fact that they would say the reason that the Red Wall was won was because of Brexit. How do you start to articulate and come up with a narrative 
that takes us towards much stronger ties with the European Union again, do you think? Well, fortunately, uh, the Conservatives stopped, started losing by-elections, both in the south of England and elsewhere. And uh, the latest opinion polls uh, a month ago, I think, uh, Ipsos Mori had uh, the clear indication that the majority of people now uh, believe that Brexit was wrong. And I think, I think 52% or 51% believe that and 22% believe it's done harm. So the public have smelt it out, quite frankly. And if I'm honest with you, I don't believe that uh, the Red Wall uh, actually voted for Brexit at all. I think they voted against frustration and uh, they were fed a diet comprising red tapes, civil servants, immigration, yes, immigration, all these things, which was paraded as an exit from the frustrations of relative economic stagnation. There are only two arguments in politics when it comes to an election. Time for a change, or don't let the other guy ruin it. And the one that wins depends upon people's sense of well-being, and that depends on how their living standards have moved in the previous 12 months. And if their living standards have been rising, don't let the other guy ruin it is a compelling argument. But if their living standards have not been rising, time for a change is the way to go. And, of course, all of those Brexit arguments were tied up with Brussels, bureaucrats, getting our country back, immigrants, red tape. It was a complete mirage, and increasingly now people are realizing it, and nowhere more so than in the small business community, sick to death of the changed climate of bureaucracy that has been created to deal with the inability of us to trade freely with our biggest market. Absolutely. You'll know this, I'm sure, um, from the people that you meet every day, but you know, businesses in particular uh, were against Brexit in the first place, and if anything, are even more anti-Brexit now. But given what you've said, and given the evidence that you've been able to uh, just articulate to us in a few moments there, are you not frustrated that Keir Starmer, the Labour Party, the opposition, aren't making that case? Or can you understand and appreciate there's a pragmatism within the opposition at the moment because obviously they're desperate to win power at the next general election? What are the sort of tactics you think you will be using, if I can put it this way, I'm not necessarily asking you to tell the Labour Party the best way to go to win the next election, but it does seem a bit strange to me. You know, a guy who was very much a Remainer uh, tried to get a, a second referendum, actually, is now not wanted to talk about the issue almost. Well, I think you, you, you're on a very really important point and you right participate. It's not my job to help the Labour Party <laughs> win the next election. <laughs> As, uh, I think they have um, they've missed the tide. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them try to catch it up again as we get closer to the election. But again, in the speech I referred to, I set out a number of uh, easy steps 
that uh, a government should now take to try and improve our relationship with our former uh, colleagues in Europe. Um, and I think the Labour Party should be pursuing that, as I believe the Conservative Party itself will come round to doing. Do you think that Rishi Sunak is the sort of personality who may start to have a more, if I can put it this way, mature approach to our relationship with the European Union and our partners? certainly seems to be reaching out to people like President Macron, for example, doesn't he? Well, I think it's slightly the other way around. It was President Macron who made the offers to us, uh, particularly over the defence yeah, okay. yeah. uh, and, and in, in return, I think, wasn't it this trust who said the jury was out? As yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think the present Prime Minister is a practical uh, guy. His problem is that he voted for Brexit. Yeah. And I could never see somebody who voted for Brexit. So if we can just talk again about cities, go back to this levelling up agenda, and one point I just wanted to get your view on really is obviously the the conversation is around London and the rest of the country trying to level up to where London is. There's two points I wanted to make here really. Um, the first is that London is a world-renowned city, a world-class city. Again, I would think that some of the things that have happened in recent weeks, actually, suggest to me that we need to be careful about London's future. The stock exchange, for example, was, since records began in 2003, always outperforming stock exchanges across Europe. We're now second to Paris. Um, And then, of course, the pandemic hit the capital hard as well. So, and the final point I'll make about London is there are areas of deprivation there too. So it can't simply be a case of let's take all the resource out of London and put it across the country. And the other thing I'd say just on the other side of that coin is ought provincial cities and towns be trying to get to that level where London's at or do we have to actually be a bit more realistic in terms of what we need to be doing? in those towns, those cities, to make them better places to live and work? Well, I I think you've made a number of important points. I think the words levelling up are misleading in themselves. We are never, as I said in the speech, going to create uh, Mayfairs in Middlesbrough. What you can do is to give people locally the feeling that they have the chance to turn a vicious circle of decline into a virtuous circle of expansion. And if people feel that where they live is enjoying a place in the sun, has become a place of opportunity, a place where people want to invest, want to live, then they, I think, can accept that there may be other places that are actually having a bigger slice of the cake. Depollution is not about holding London in order to divert it to the provinces. Can we, I can hear someone knocking my door. Can I just hold there? Yes, certainly we'll pause. Yeah, yeah thank you. Just pause. Yeah. 
Thanks, Lord Hesseltan. Yeah, you were just saying that we can't make Middlesbrough Mayfair, but there are ways in which we can make people feel more comfortable in their own place without necessarily taking everything away from those economic centres and growth such as London. Chris, to think that you should choke off the success of London in the hope that you would actually uh, stimulate success elsewhere. In, in my view, choking off the success in London would have the ripple effect of diminishing success elsewhere. No, what we have to do is to use the resources that we have to greater effect. First of all, I've explained, coordinate them. Secondly, ensure that what the government can afford to spend is stimulates what others, like the third sector, local government, quangos, the private sector, are able to add to what the government is spending. Now, all of these ideas are so well experienced that we've done it time and time again. Um, London Docklands, there you had it, for every pound of public money, we got £10 of private money. In relatively deprived parts of London, as you rightly say, Liverpool, in the worst of circumstances, we got £1.5 for every pound of public money. And if you look at the areas, London Docklands or Liverpool, of which we concentrated on in the 1980s and 90s, they've been transformed. So taking the lessons, the proven lessons, and extending them isn't rocket science. It's what any businessman would do faced with the trauma of trying to deal with these depressed areas. I had a fascinating discussion last night in Liverpool with people. And uh, first of all, it was very noticeable that there was a great deal of confidence in the city and its future. And everyone was coming up with ideas as to what should happen. Now, that's what you want. You see, that's exactly what London can't do. And, and it can't do it for two reasons. First of all, because it hasn't got the knowledge, the smell of the place. It doesn't know how it works and where the trends are and where the opportunities are. So uh, it can't do that. But secondly, London doesn't even think of places. It thinks of transport, housing, health, law and order. And it's got blinkers on. Well, when you get down to, to as I was last night in, in, in Liverpool, the, the people are talking about a place, about a community, about people, about locality, about opportunities that they can see staring them in the face. I think you've given us all uh, some optimism, some calls for optimism moving forward. Um, I want to make one final question in terms but, of the Brexit. Minute, there's one point. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, there's one thing we have got to do. Uh, we, we've talked about the metro mayors, and, and there are now a number of them. But when I first became involved in this controversy, it was in the 1960s. Uh, 1966, I was elected to Parliament. And the Redcliffe Maud report looked at local government in England. There were 1,300 local authorities. Why? Because they had been designed when the only means of communication was by foot or by horse. Mm. And Redcliffe Ward looked at all this and said, what you really need is 62 authorities, unitary authorities, not two tiers, and produced a map. That map 
is absolutely right, subject to small modifications around the edges. And um, today, we've got over 300 local authorities. The first thing that should happen, and the saving that should follow of public money, is that we should implement effectively the Redcliffe Maud report of 1968. And uh, if I give you an example, a large number of our local authorities are counties, and beneath them they have eight, nine, ten district councils. Uh, Dorset, Shropshire, Wiltshire, they haven't got that. They are unitary authorities. Scotland and Wales, they got rid of the district councils in the 1990s. Nobody wants to bring them back. So the first thing is to create a framework within which local people can identify their economy. And the, the, the easy one is, broadly speaking, the county or the big city. And of course, in the northwest, that gives us Lancashire and Cheshire. Uh, big conurbations. Cheshire, to be fair, has been reorganised, but Lancashire is still that one big conurbation with two unitaries attached. And, and it does cause some big rows and, I think, missed opportunities for the county. Well, I, I am myself sceptical about che Cheshire being divided up in the way it is. Would you, would you go back to a, a unitary there rather than having... Well, you've got a bit of a mishmash, haven't you? Because you've got Warrington, Holton, you've got quite a few things in terms of their governance structure going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to answer about the particular boundaries because, you know, you need to have the map in front of you and all of that. But by, by and large, metro counties with their districts and unitary counties would be my objective. And then you'd, you'd have uh, something like 60, 70 local authorities uh, which it would makes absolute sense economically, structurally, and above, and perhaps more important, loyally, because people identify with their counties. They don't yeah. identify with districts. Yeah, very, very much agree. Uh, Lord Hesseltan, I just want to um, finish by talking about some of the highlights of, of your career, if, if we may, uh, and really um, some questions about the great jobs that you've had, as I mentioned, I'm sure that the changes that you've been able to make to cities, particularly Liverpool, uh, give you great pride. Um, but in terms of those big government roles that you had, was there anyone in particular that you thought uh, it was a job that perhaps you'd have loved to have done a bit longer? Because we all know careers in politics, departments, Sometimes you moved a little quicker than you'd like. Other times, elections come along. Um, was there a particular job within the government that you did that you really did love and enjoy? Well, I was extremely lucky. First of all, I was in my government jobs for usually about three years. And secondly, they all had strong commercial business type activities within them and um, so basically I, I'm a businessman you know that's where I came from I started with a thousand pounds and created uh, the Haymarket Publishing Group so um, all my instincts all my 
and interesting, it's very important, enterprising instincts, you know, getting results and all that. They all, that of the small businessman, who uh, had the privilege to, to operate on a wider canvas. Um, but, of course, I, I, I would have liked to be Prime Minister, but um, that was a, a step too far. I think a lot of us would have liked to have seen you be Prime Minister, Lord Heseltine. Uh, the best Prime Minister we never had, I think, is a tag that you've been uh, described as by more than one person. But in terms of Prime Ministers, who was the one that you most enjoyed working alongside? Uh, well, uh, I had a very good working relationship with John Major. Uh, but to me, the Prime Minister that uh, I single out is Harold Macmillan. Because he told the British people the truth, a very difficult thing to do, to explain that the day of empire was over, that the day of world supremacy had passed, that we were now a nation state of um, high resource, but no longer of the world class of the United States. Uh, this was a very difficult message to tell people. But he did it, and he explained why we had to join the European Union, uh, because that was the real world in which we operated. And he was uh, he was a visionary. Do you think that we're going to have politicians big enough, bold enough to tell the population of the UK now that at some point we do need to start to have those mature conversations that you were outlining earlier? terms of our relationship with the European Union, do you indeed see uh, within the next 25 years, let's say, let's put this out there in terms of what's going to happen in the future, get your crystal ball out, if you will, will we end up being members of the European Union again, or will the relationship always have to be a little different now? I think that uh, the next election will almost certainly produce a political climate in which the debate to, re to reassociate with Europe will predominate. And um, I may be wrong, you can never be sure about these things, but um, I think that, uh, well, it, it's quite obvious that we're going to have a very rough time after the next election. Um, nobody, I'm not going to predict the results here. Uh, but uh, uh, all I would say is if the Conservatives leave, lose, then the party will regroup and, in my view, will realise the mistake it made over Brexit. Lord Tesseltine, is ever fascinating to catch up with you. I do hope that we can get you to some sort of face-to-face -face event for downtown in business next year. We're talking to your people, trying to, to make that happen. But it's been a great privilege as i say to be able to catch up with you on the podcast i do wish you and your family all the very best for christmas in the new year and as i say hope to see you some point during 2023 many thanks i've enjoyed it thank you so that was lord michael hesseltine uh, an absolute legend privileged to be able to have a conversation with him we've been fortunate enough at downtown in business to do uh, three uh, live events with Michael over the years. We're hoping, as I said during the podcast then, 
to getting back to an event in the new year. I've got everything crossed that he's going to be able to join us for our regeneration conference in Birmingham in February. Um, but I'm sure you will hear that um, despite the fact that his uh, biggest political jobs are certainly behind him, um, you have a man there in his 80s who is as passionate as committed uh, to the things that have driven him throughout his life, throughout his career, as he ever has been. It's great to speak to somebody as enthusiastic, as visionary about some of the big strategic issues and challenges that we face as a country uh, as Michael Heseltine. Absolutely delighted, as I say, that we were able to secure uh, half an hour or more with him. So that was the Downtown Den podcast for another week. Uh, Come back and join us next week where we'll have another big personality sharing their thoughts, comments and opinions about whatever is on their mind. And that's been me, Frank McKenna, Chairman, Chief Executive of Downtown in Business in the Downtown Den. See you again very soon. Downtown in Business is the fastest growing business organisation in the UK. Working with decision makers from over a thousand companies across the country in Liverpool, Lancashire, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Cheshire, Wolverhampton, Newcastle and London with more locations to follow. Through an extensive and exciting events programme and through our social media platforms, we connect our members with other businesses who can help them grow. And we engage with senior politicians and officials at local, regional and national level to promote business-friendly policies. To join Downtown in Business, please visit our website, that's all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Why don't you get involved with the fastest growing business organisation in the UK?